0: Okay, turn with me to John chapter 7, and we're going to finish up this chapter. We'll be in verses 37 through 52 this evening. John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. This is an interesting passage, and I thought about many different titles, um, because well, Jesus is using the metaphor here of drinking in the Holy Spirit. And a couple of thoughts that went through my mind is title this, The Holy Water That Does Not Fill in a Bottle, Fit in a Bottle, or The Drink That Really Does Give You Wings. But I decided, you know, this is the Holy Spirit we're talking about. One of the person heard the Trinity. And it deserves respect. And so I titled it The Promise of the Spirit which is what Jesus is giving us here in this passage as he speaks. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight, the Spirit. And it is a person of the Trinity, right? You have in your bulletin and the fun facts section a description of when the Trinity, that term, was first used and why it's in our orthodoxy. And it helps us explain and understand many different aspects of Scripture as we bring in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And tonight we're going to see God the Son and God the Spirit interacting together. And to start off, I have a video for us to watch. Mm, chocolate, mm, mm, peanut butter. Hey, oh, you put your chocolate and my peanut, peanut butter. Peanut butter and my chocolate. What? what? Oh. Two great tastes that taste great together. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, real milk chocolate, delicious peanut butter. Reese's Peanut Butter Cup And Reese's Crunchy Peanut Butter Cups, topped with chopped peanuts. So some of you are old enough to remember that commercial. From 1970 to about 1985, Reese's had these types of commercials, right? Uh, people bumping into each other and mixing uh, chocolate and peanut butter. And just like the chocolate and peanut butter in the Reese's cups are intertwined with one another to make something very delicious, we're going to see the night that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are intertwined to make something eternal for us. And so just keep that in mind. I I brought some Reese's cups. They actually started melting a little bit in my pocket, so they're a little soft. Mr. Barney, I'll give this to you at the end, okay? Okay. So I think he has a sweeter tooth than I do. (laughs) I ate one of them, sorry. (laughs) It's quality assurance, okay? (laughs) So the big idea tonight that I want you to leave with is the work of the Holy Spirit is intertwined with the work of Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit is intertwined with the work of Jesus. They go hand in hand. And I would submit to you tonight that if we did not have the Holy Spirit, all our orthodoxy, what we believe about God, and all our orthopraxy, what we do for God, all falls apart. And I think we'll see that tonight as we walk through things. And I hope everybody here understands the Holy Spirit is a person of the Trinity, right? And that he's not just a force like in Star Wars, right? He's not the force. Um, he's a real person of the Trinity as a spirit. Um, but mo- I would, well, I'm going to give you some facts because I think you'll be surprised that most people don't believe as you do tonight. So, a recent survey by the Cultural Research Center that looks at the theology of America says 52% of the people say the Holy Spirit is not a living entity, but merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. Only 32% believe He is real. We, of course, know He is real. Lifeway and Ligonier do a state of theology survey, and their last one uh, says the following, 59%. Believe the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. Twenty-two percent believe the Holy Spirit can tell me to do something which is forbidden in the Bible. God can't sin, right? God, the Spirit cannot sin. Only thirty percent of evangelical Christians believe there is one true God in three persons. That should give us pause, right? As I get, I said at the beginning. Um, Of the service oftentimes we don't preach about the holy spirit enough right we don't give him his due Uh, we avoid him because there's things we don't understand about the holy spirit right and i'm not going to describe everything tonight because i don't understand everything about the holy spirit nor will we ever right how dare we think we can figure everything out about god because that would make us equal with him there are going to be mysteries and parts and how the holy spirit acts is one of those so i'm gonna start off by reading the verses here starting in verse 37 through 52 and then we're going to kind of take it apart and look at three sections in here so starting with verse 37 remember from last week jesus is at this feast right the feast of what feast of Booths, feast of tabernacles right they've gone through their seven days and now we're on the eighth day on the last day of the feast the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Remember, Jesus is writing this after resurrection, right? He's reflecting the life of Jesus. So he knows what's going to happen at Pentecost. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. And others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. What a testimony, right? The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. And then Nicodemus, remember we visited him in chapter 3, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing? And learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So may God bless the reading of his word. This is what scripture says and not me, right? This is God's holy word. First thing I want you to realize, um, you probably picked up on it in verse 37, that Jesus does a couple of abnormal things. He stands up rather than sitting down and teaching, and he cries out in a loud voice, rather than teaching in a normal uh, teaching voice, which is unusual for a rabbi, right? But I think if you understood some of the context, I think you'll see why Jesus did that. See, this is the eighth day. And something special happened on the eighth day. More than that it was just a big party, right, of celebration. For the first seven days, every morning, they would go out to the pool of Siloam and get water. It's fresh water. Um, it was built by, say, there was a spring of Gihon outside Jerusalem, and way back when Hezekiah said, well, you know, if Jerusalem ever gets attacked, we're not going to have fresh water, the enemy will. So he built a 2,000-foot-long tunnel in a solid rock to bring that spring into the walls of Jerusalem, and that's the Pool of Siloam. It's the only fresh water in Jerusalem. It's still there today. It's actually the lowest point in the city of Jerusalem. And so you can still go visit that pool. And I'm sure they'll sell you little bottles of jars <laughs> of water as well, right? Um, but they would go and gather this fresh water and bring it to the altar every day and pour it on one side. And then the priest would go on the other side, pull a drink offering of wine on the other side to worship God. And in the midst of this, the people would, would um, chant the Hallel, the morning prayer, which is the six psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. They would say those every morning. Those are psalms of thanksgiving and praise to God. They'd have a little worship service, right? Every morning as this water is being poured. And the water was there on purpose to remind them that God had provided water for them in the wilderness from a a rock, right? You remember what what, um, Moses got in trouble for, right? He hit the rock out of anger, right? But eventually he hit the rock and God called water to flow from that rock to supply water to the people. And this was to do a remembrance for them. But on the eighth day at the end of the service, all the water would stop. They would stop doing that. And so Jesus stands up to fill the gap. He says, you're no longer bringing water to the altar. I am the living water. Remember where he is. He's in the middle of the temple courts. People all around him because they're no longer in their little booze anymore. They're all back into the city celebrating this large party. And Jesus stands up, abnormal for a rabbi. They usually teach while they're sitting down. And they don't normally scream and yell. That's for the zealots. But he screams and says, what? If you're thirsty, come to me. And people would connect what he meant because the water from Siloam was no longer being poured on the altar. So he says in verse 37, if anyone thirst," he's talking about spiritual thirst, right? He's been doing that consistently since meeting with Nicodemus. He's not talking about Being thirsty after working outside in the hot sun, right? He's speaking about spiritual thirst. Lack of peace, emptiness. And if any of you here tonight have that, lack of peace and emptiness, Jesus can fulfill that through the Holy Spirit tonight. You can ask him to be your Lord and Savior, and he will fill you with peace that is, I guarantee, is beyond any human understanding. That's spiritual thirst. And the way Jesus asks this if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, it begs the affirmative that if you come to me, you will no longer be thirsty. It's a resolution. And come to me, who's the source of of this satisfaction? It's Jesus, right? Come to me, not the altar. Not the temple, but come to me, the Son of God. And Jesus is playing. He's giving a metaphor of the Spirit. That, that's what's going to satisfy you. Believing in me, when you do that, I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. That will satisfy you. You will no longer be spiritually thirsty. He's really calling out the people there that have parched souls, Right? They're looking for the Messiah. They're looking for direction from the, the Jewish leaders. For anybody, right? And Jesus says, I have your answer. Come to me, the Son of God, your Messiah, and I will give you the Holy Spirit, which will satisfy your spiritual thirst. And they are to drink, right? You do something active, right? So he didn't say, I'm going to turn you over and waterboard you with the Holy Spirit. No, you have to drink, right? You have to do an action. You have to accept. You have to have faith. Drink with the mouth of faith to receive the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says the following, For in one spirit we are all baptized in one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. The Holy Spirit is for everyone. Okay, It's inclusive. Everyone who comes to Jesus to will receive the Holy Spirit. As as we talked last week, the, the question is for everyone. It's inclusive, but the means to receiving the Holy Spirit receive, is exclusive, right? Only through Jesus. You have to come to the source, just like they had to go to the source of Siloam. They had to go to that pool to get the water for the altar. You have to go to Jesus to receive the Holy Spirit. This is the same living water he told the the uh, woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, right? I will give you living water that will satisfy you. Just paraphrasing. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he offers the spiritual water to all of us. The water that flows from him for eternity. This is after resurrection. Before resurrection, if you read through the Old Testament, God occasionally, he would put the spirit on somebody to do something for him, and then he would remove it. Or if they sinned like it's all, he would remove the spirit. The Spirit wasn't and did not indwell a person indefinitely. It's only after his resurrection, only after he conquered the penalty of sin, only after he came back to life. Then he said, I will give you a gift. I gave you a helper, the paraclete, the encourager. I will give you the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. I don't know how it happens. I just know it does. I have experienced it. Many of you have who have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, all have received the Holy Spirit. And we don't receive small, medium, large, extra large size of the Holy Spirit, right? There's only one Spirit, the Bible says, and we receive all of him. So kids, when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you receive the same amount of Holy Spirit as somebody who's 99, accepts Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You have the same Holy Spirit that empowers an adult. That's right, whoever's praising him. Amen. Where We see the full amount. He empowers us. And to me, that just boggles my mind, that in this sinful husk of dust that I have part of the Trinity indwelling me. Does it amaze you? And how often do I not listen to that? Right? That I quenched and hardened my heart and not listen to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. See, when He indwells us, He does something very important. He seals us for the day of redemption. He seals our salvation. John 4:14: Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. John three, John six, thirty-five says the same thing: whoever believes in me shall never thirst. They're all pointing back to Isaiah 55.1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters of salvation. He is the only one that will satisfy. Not only does the Holy Spirit satisfy, in verses 38 through 39, we see the Holy Spirit supplies life, eternal life. And in this passage, Jesus is pointing back, as in his speech, to Isaiah 12.3. And you remember Jesus oftentimes points back to Isaiah, right? When he was 12 year old, what scroll was he reading? Isaiah, right? Oftentimes when he's in his temple trying to teach the Pharisees and the people, what is he quoting from? Isaiah. And so he's pointing back to Isaiah 12, 3, which says, With joy, I like that, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy, you will receive the Holy Spirit. See, the call of Jesus is not simply a call to drink and be satisfied. It's more than that. It's also a call to be filled and overflowing with the Holy Spirit. So there's two parts. There's indwelling at a moment of our salvation, and then we are called to be filled and overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Two separate things. And when we do that, we receive his blessings, and we overflow and bless others. That's why he's talking about this river flowing out of us, Right? Out of a heart will flow the rivers of living water. God puts his spirit within each believer. And each believer then has eternal life. And the evidence of life is the Holy Spirit within us. People ask all the time, well, how do you know that person is saved? I see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in that person. I don't have to guess. Yes, only God truly knows the heart of a person. But I can see the evidence of the Holy Spirit in somebody's life. And we'll... Walk through that towards the end of the sermon, what what that looks like. So in a sense, this river of living water, it flows from the hearts of believers to one another. It's to edify the body. It's to grow us individually. It's to share the gospel with others. Remember Revelation 7, 17, this picture of the lamb and the shepherd? The lamb and the shepherd, they're leading the people to the water of life. It says, for the lamb, Jesus in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them through the spring of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The Holy Spirit is what gives us life. It's the agent God uses, the God the Father uses to give us eternal life. Reminds me of Psalm 23 too, right? When David, receiving God's instruction says, the shepherd will lead him beside still waters. Still waters, storing his soul, bringing him life. How does it bring us life? Because it's going, to, it says it's going to seal our salvation. It's when God says, that person is mine. I know that person is mine because my spirit is within them. Second Corinthians 1.22. And who has also put his seal in us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee guarantee of what what does god guarantee eternal life and we know god from genesis to revelation keeps his promises and the seal of the holy spirit is guaranteeing that he will come back for us we see it again in first corinthians chapter 5 and ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 4 the same phrases that he is our guarantee see the gift of the spirit to us believers is a down payment on our heavenly inheritance. We're not there yet, right? We're only on a journey walking through this world. But our inheritance is in heaven. And the spirit in our, inside of us, indwelling us, is our down payment. Secured for us at the cross. We just celebrated Easter, right? What Jesus did. Remember his words? It is finished. That's a financial term. It means paid in full. Our sin debt has been paid in full. It is finished. We therefore receive our inheritance from God, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Later, we're going to sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. It's the Holy Spirit that is a seal that I had been washed white as snow. It's because the Spirit seals us that I can be assured I have salvation. I can never lose it. Everybody hear me, you can never lose your salvation. Because you're sealed in God's Spirit. God's not going to remove his spirit from you. Because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. So, because we have the seal of the spirit of eternal life in our hearts, we can live joyfully and confident of our sure place in the future, the whole is unimaginable glories. Are we going to go through hard times in life? Absolutely. But can we still have joy? Yes. Amen. Because of the confidence we have in Christ. Because of his gift of the Holy Spirit. And then when we look at verses 40 through 52, it should not be surprising that we see the Holy Spirit subdivides. People are going to have different opinions about what Jesus is saying, just as they did with him. You see, when these people heard these words, you have people with different reactions. Uh, this is Jesus the Christ. No, he's the prophet. No, he's a crazy man. You know, they're having all these things. What is Jesus talking about, this living water? What is this Holy Spirit? Is he equating himself to God again? Yes, <laughs> he is. And you see what happens to the religious establishments in verses 47 through 49. They get snobbish, right? The soldiers come back and they said, we didn't arrest Jesus because, well, he spoke with authority. Spoke like no one else we've ever heard. We didn't feel like we could go up there and arrest him. And they couldn't, right? He had that divine immunity, that divine authority. And the Pharisees say what? They answered in verse 47, have you also been deceived? Have any of us believed in him? But this crowd, they don't know the law like we do. They're accursed. They're being quite arrogant, are they not? They think they're above the people, that the people don't understand that Jesus is trying to deceive them according to their minds. But he's not. He's bringing truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then old Nicodemus shows up. Verse fifteen, fifty-one. Remember, he's part of the Sanhedrin, part of the ruling class of Jews. And we met him in chapter 3. And what was the discussion about in chapter 3? It was about what? Spiritual regeneration, spiritual thirst, and satisfying. It was about the Holy Spirit, about being born again. Kind of the same subject we're talking about here. And Nicodemus, I think, got it. He's here kind of speaking up for Jesus, like, we shouldn't go arrest him now. He, he, he deserves, by our law, he, he's got to have some testimony of witnesses against him, right? There's a process we have to follow. And those Pharisees looked at him and said, basically as telling him, are you one of his as well? Are you from Galilee as well? Are you sympathetic to Jesus? And we'll see later on, as we all know the story, that Nicodemus plays an influential part in his burial, right? taking care of Jesus' body in the tomb. Uh, Jesus uh, He he invests his own money, a great sum of money, for all the ointments and myrrh, frankincense, the burial plot, and so forth. So Nicodemus, I think, has had time to think about what Jesus meant about spiritual thirst, spiritual renewal, and he understands what Jesus is trying to teach. But the Pharisees are not having any of it. It's divisive, right? And with all their arrogancy, they miss the Old Testament. They keep talking about, no Messiah, no Christ can come from Galilee. Well, Scripture never says he had to come from Galilee, right? He didn't have to reside there. He just was born in Bethlehem, right? But he could reside anywhere on the, in the world. We all know he was born in Bethlehem. And then he resided and lived in Galilee, different places, right? Also spent some time in Egypt, as we all know. And then they're wrong about, there's no prophets that comes from Galilee in verse 52. They forget their scripture. Micah, Jonah, Elijah, were all from Galilee. Possibly also Hosea and Nahum. I mean which commentary you look at. So there were prophets from Galilee. They're misquoting their scripture. They're trying to what? Mislead the people and all their arrogance. So the Holy Spirit subdivides. Should not be surprising, right? Because it's intertwined. He is intertwined with Jesus. Jesus subdivided the people, right? We taught you either follow him or you forsake him. Same thing with the Holy Spirit, right? You're either going to accept the Holy Spirit or turn away from the Holy Spirit in your life. We've seen that the Holy Spirit satisfies. We've seen the Holy Spirit supplies life and that he subdivides. Same actions of Jesus, and I would submit to you the same actions of God the Father. So you mean all three persons of the Trinity work as one? Yes, I do. (laughs) They do all things things together, right? Because they are one. Remember the big idea, the work of the Holy Spirit is intertwined with the work of Jesus. The three are in one, they work together, they're not apart from each other. Jesus always pointed to who? God the Father. And he gives us what gift? The Holy Spirit. Let's walk through a couple applications tonight. What this means for us. First one is walking with and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Walking with and being filled with the Holy Spirit. We've learned what indwelling means, right? At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes within us. Somehow mysteriously interact with our soul, right? To teach us and guide us if we listen, if we don't quench the Spirit. But this walking and being filled with the Holy Spirit, what does that mean? So being walking in the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit in the New Testament mean the same thing, okay? Sometimes Paul and disciples use filling. Sometimes they use walking in the Spirit. They mean the same thing. It's the action of the Holy Spirit in your life. You'll so see that the Holy Spirit is God, It's not passive. God's personally involved in each one of our lives. Personally involved enough that his son died for you. Personally involved enough that he gave his spirit to you. Personally involved enough that his spirit is going to work through you if you don't quench it and harden your hearts. See, we have that little thing called free will that God gave us. And unfortunately, we can quench the Holy Spirit. We cannot listen to him. We choose not to listen, choose not to obey. Choose not to let it empower us. Scripture says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, right? Don't quench the Holy Spirit. So those who walk in the Spirit are united with God and are the bearers of the works of the Spirit that it produces, that he produces. Those who walk in the Spirit are united with God and are the bearers of the works of the Spirit that that he produces. It's supernatural work, the Spirit working through you. Do you want to be a miracle worker? You already are when you're listening to the Spirit. When He is empowering what you do, when He's illuminating Scripture as you're trying to understand it, when He's empowering you to share the gospel, when He's empowering you to make a right decision to follow Him in obedience, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit is already doing a miracle within you. So the proof of the Spirit's presence is his operations on the human heart. And as I've studied scripture this week, I, I came up with a list of six things that he, the Holy Spirit produces. So those of you who are note takers, I'm going to list six things. You ready? Number one, the biggest one, repentance, right? It is the Holy Spirit who calls us to repentance. To convict us of our sin. That woos us to him. Number two, the fruit of the Spirit. Hope, kids, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Okay, louder and in unison. One, two, three, go. Very good. For those of you online, they sang Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23. The fruit of the Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit in you and you're walking with the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit, you're going to have evidence of the fruit. And remember, the evidence of the fruit has nothing to do with you, it's the Spirit within you. Third thing conformity to God's commands and will. If I'm walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, I'm going to obey God. Should I watch this movie? Or should I watch this pornography? Or should I follow and obey God? If you're walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, you're going to obey the will of God. Should I lie to my mom and dad? Or should I be honest and tell them the truth? If you're walking in the Spirit, you're going to tell them the truth. Number four, a passion for prayer, praise, and His Word. Not a checklist. God's not giving us a checklist. Okay, I got to pray today. I got to read my Bible. Oh, maybe I'll sing him a song in the shower. That's not what he wants. He wants you to have a passion to pray to him, to talk with him. He wants you to have a passion for his word. He wants you to have a passion to praise him. It can be in the shower. That's okay. but, But praise him, right? You can praise him anywhere. The acoustics are great in the shower, right? I sent you in Realm this week uh, some statistics from the American Bible Society. Some of you have read that, right? If you haven't, go look at it. You see the, the demise of spiritual literacy in the United States. And how many people do not read the Bible? May that not be so of us. May we passionately read his word every day. First thing in the morning, let God guide you. Not social media, not email. Heaven's not email, okay? But let the Holy Spirit through God's word guide you. So repentance through the spirit, conforming to God's commands and will, a passion for prayer, praise and word. Number five, a heart posture of thankfulness, singing, and joy. A heart posture of thankfulness, singing, and joy. I'll put up verses for all these around later this week for you, okay? A heart posture of those things. Not doom and gloom, not ingratitude, not entitlement, not grumbling, not being in the depths of despair, not having a bad me day, etc. That's not what he calls us to. If you're being filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, you're going to have a heart posture of thankfulness and singing and joy, Number six, love for his people. If you're walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, you're going to want to be with his people. You're going to want to do life with them. Coming together congregationally for service, Sunday school classes, community groups, doing things together around the house, helping each other with repairs or what have you, loving his people. So all that worked out this week, right? And last week, when we were all praying for baby Ian, I saw this worked out, the love of this church surrounding this family. That's what God wants. Those six things, if you're walking in the Spirit. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Something actively we do, right? Those who walk in the Spirit rely on the Holy Spirit to guide them in thought, word, and deed. See, I I can't come up here and preach out of Charles' mind. I mean, I could, but that's not what God calls me to do, right? I need to be empowered by the Spirit in thought, word, and deed. In every aspect of my life, just not here at the pulpit, as a father, as a husband, as an employee, as a neighbor, a member of human society, that's what he wants us to do. And when we do that and others see us, what do they see? What are we reflecting? Jesus Christ, right? What's the title of this entire series? Magnifying the glory of Christ. So, moment by moment, daily holiness is what we're searching for, right? Just what Jesus did. Remember in Luke chapter four, he was what? He was filled with the spirit. And then what did he do next? He went out into the desert guided by who? The spirit. And he was tempted by who? Satan. But because Jesus was filled with the spirit, was walking in the spirit, he was able to what? Resist Satan's temptations. Praise God that he did, right? Or we would not be here worshiping as a congregation today. So when we walk in the Spirit, we can find find that spiritual appetites of the flesh have no dominion over us. Whether that be an addiction we have, some mental health issue, whatever the case may be, God can free us of those things through his Holy Spirit. Walking with and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the second application. The Holy Spirit's role in the Lord's Supper. Hmm, have you ever thought about that? What's the Holy Spirit's role in the Supper? We know kind of what our role, well, maybe we know what our role is, right? Just trying to figure out how to open that thing, right? <laughs> well, that's more to it than that. What is the Holy Spirit's role in the Lord's Supper? The Holy Spirit enables believers to rightly examine themselves and to come to the Lord's Supper with fresh faith and repentance. Read it one more time. The Holy Spirit enables believers to rightly examine themselves and to come to the Lord's Supper with fresh faith and repentance. It's again a supernatural moment when the Holy Spirit is communing with my soul, with your soul. That should just kind of make our minds go, what? I'm communicating with one of the Trinity intimately. The Lord suffers an appointed means of reconciliation via remembrance. Jesus said, do these things in remembrance of me. But it has a purpose. It's just not supposed to be something we do, a checkbox, some ordinance we do. It has a purpose, and that purpose is reconciliation. That's the whole reason Jesus wanted us to do it. This is one reason why it's only for believers to be reconciled unto him. We can either walk in the Spirit through the Lord's Supper, or I can walk in Charles or walk in the world and not have repentance and reconciliation. To reconcile, we have to do something first, right? We have to examine ourselves. We don't like to do that, right? We are selfish. We don't want to admit that we are wrong. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight 28 says, let a person examine himself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Psalm 19, verses 12 through 14. You'll recognize that passage of, of David crying out to God. He says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David said, examine me. Cleanse me of anything that separates me from you. And you ask, well, Charles, how do we do that? Because Jeremiah seventeen nine says our hearts are deceitful beyond anything else. And the rest of Jeremiah tells us that we're, it, our hearts lead us to evil and idolatry. So how do we, in that mode, how do we even try to examine ourselves? You can't by yourself. By means of God's word, the Holy Spirit enables us to rightly examine ourselves and to come to the Lord's Supper with fresh faith and repentance. See, we cannot examine ourselves on our own. It's God's word used by the Holy Spirit to cause us to examine ourselves rightly. See, that's the purpose of the Holy Spirit during this moment of Lord's Supper, is to come alongside of us and say, okay, Charles, I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna bring some scripture to mind and you've done these things wrong. And I need you to repent and reconcile yourself because you're grieving me, the Holy Spirit, and you're separating yourself from God. That's what the conversations he's having with us during the Lord's Supper. And so I I think there's three steps, um, not 12, three steps, uh, for working with the Holy Spirit in the Lord's Supper. The first one is the Holy Spirit uses the inspired word of God like a surgeon's scalpel to pull apart our thoughts and our intentions. He uses the word of God like a surgeon's scalpel to pull apart our thoughts and our intentions. Hebrews 4.12 tells us what? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, Piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's the only thing that actually can discern our hearts, right? And get past Charles, right? It can pierce that and say, Charles, this is what I see in your heart. He does the same for each one of you. Second step, after it does that, the Holy Spirit then opens our eyes to loathe our sin, not relish in our sin or be happy that we've done our sin, but to really loathe it. God says sin is an abomination to him. It should be that for us as well. Ezekiel 36, 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. The Holy Spirit is to bring that conviction to our minds. It's to remind us that the Holy Spirit's inside of us and we're receiving God's grace. While God's Spirit never leaves us and it never will, and never puts us in a state of self condemnation, God's Word says we are not condemned, but it does produce in us a, um, a godly sorrow, a grieving, and a sanctified ability to grieve over our sin. And that's a good thing and an appropriate thing and the right thing. It's okay if you cry over your sin. It's okay if you beat yourself up a little bit. But don't stay there, right? You're not condemned by your sin. But do grieve over it. Step three, the Holy Spirit leads us to confess our sin. First, it pulls apart our hearts and shows us what our sin is. And then it moves us to a state of loathing over our sin. And then it helps us confess our sin to God. Sometimes we can't even get the words out and the Holy Spirit will do that for us through his unctions, right? John 16, we'll get there eventually as we go to the book of John. But Jesus is saying, "Um, I'm gonna go away and when I go, I'm gonna give you a gift and I will send him, the helper, the Holy Spirit to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's one of its goals is to convict us of our sin and to cause us to confess. And then here's the beautiful miracle. After all that, he moves us from this repentance to complete reconciliation. Not partial, complete reconciliation. First John nine: if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to remove us, our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You are white as snow. He remembers your sins no more. This is what the purpose of the Lord's Supper is, to move us to reconciliation with him. Remembrance of Jesus, right? But remembrance with a purpose, reconciliation with him. So metaphorically, when heaven comes down and touches the earth, our response should not be quenching the Spirit and hardening our hearts. Our response should be repentance, reconciliation, transformation, and praise. That's what it should be. As the worship team comes up, we're about to partake in the Lord's Supper. We're about to commune with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to lead you in a prayer in a moment at a Psalm 139. A church, someone once said, is a transaction house. It's a place where you do business with God. And that's what this moment is for. The movie from re- repentance to Reconciliation. So after I lead us in a prayer together, um, I'm going to ask Chad and the worship team just to give us 30 seconds to 60 seconds of quiet time because I want them to be able to say as well instead of just leading us, I want them to have a chance to reflect and work with the Holy Spirit as well. But I want you to pray to the Holy Spirit. Listen to him. And then the worship team is going to pray a song. You've got about three minutes in to finish your praying and then come get your elements and then we'll do the Lord's Supper. But this is a moment to do business with God, to listen to the Holy Spirit, to let him work in you. And we get to do that as a unified body of Christ with the same spirit. So I'm going to lead us in prayer. I want you to Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. I just want you to repeat after me this prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Amen.